0: So today we are going to get into the question of the intersection of the charter and administrative law, and what we have to always bear in mind when we're looking at this is there are different sort of permutations for how this problem arises. Um, And there's sort of a significant divide over whether we're talking about the interaction between review of legislation for whether it complies with the charter and admin tribunals and whether those tribunals can and should engage in that sort of a review of legislation itself. But then also the question of, well, when the legislation is fine, What do we do when an admin tribunal is alleged to have acted in a manner inconsistent with the charter, or is asked to determine whether somebody else has acted inconsistently with the charter? So these are sort of three different separate types of questions that we need to keep sort of analytically distinct as we go through the analysis. And what I'm going to do today is tackle the question of the questions really of admin tribunals determining um, whether the legislator has violated the charter through legislation and admin tribunals uh, tackling the question of whether somebody else has violated the charter adjudicating the actions of the executive when we're going to get into the question of whether the tribunals themselves have acted in a manner consistent with the Charter and exercised in their discretion, that's really the dore and uh, Charter values analysis, which is discussed in this book chapter, but which I'm going to sort of I'm going to tackle this chapter in the reverse order. I'm going to start with the second half, and then. I'll set up at the end of the class, hopefully, the Doré uh, framework. But then we will really get into that next class after you've read Doré and Trinity Western University. And just to um, prep those readings, if you haven't looked at them yet, what you have in those cases are these two different decisions on that question of how do you grapple with an allegation that there's been a failure for a tribunal to exercise this discretion or act in accordance with the Charter. And Doré you have this um, unanimous Supreme Court of Canada setting up this Charter Values Framework and then at Trinity Western University you'll see a very split court going all sorts of different ways on the question of the proper way to tackle Charter Values. So for your reading you'll see Dora uh, is relatively manageable. It's a relatively short case, actually, for a modern Supreme Court of Canada it's a significant case. It's remarkably short. It's 35 pages, including including the headnotes. Uh, Trinity Western University is more in line with what we're used to seeing out of the court these days. It's a 100-plus page decision with, you know, concurring reasons and dissenting reasons. And I have highlighted portions of I think three different sets of reasons. So you're going to want to. You know, scroll through the whole case to make sure you pick up on all the different people's, different judges' approach to the issue, because it does get quite complicated and thorny. Um, So I'll come back to setting up those cases at the end of today's lecture. But what I want to start with is these more um, manageable and yet still a little bit tricky questions of how do tribunals themselves grapple with allegations that somebody else has acted inconsistently with the Charter, either the legislator or a different administrative actor? So let's start with the question of a tribunal assessing the Charter compliance of legislation. So if you go to the Residential Tenancy Board or you go to the National Energy Board or you go to, a, or you're visited by a restaurant inspector or any other member of the executive, does that person have the power or the duty and responsibility to ascertain if the legislation it is being asked to apply is charter compliant? that's the fundamental question that we're grappling with here this is important obviously because if you are going to a tribunal and you say hold on a second this legislation that you're you know you're purporting to apply to my situation is clearly violative of my charter rights maybe it's plainly discriminatory Do you have to go an extra step of going to court to getting that sort of a declaration before that tribunal will just apply that to your dispute? Or can you raise it right with the tribunal and have the tribunal say, you're right, I'm not going to apply that legislation to you because it violates the charter. Like you could imagine a hypothetical example of um, the residential tenancy branch having a a provision that says um, you you cannot evict anybody except for these reasons, and one of the reasons is that they are engaging in Muslim religious ceremonies. Well, that is so obviously inconsistent with the charter. Do you really have to go to the court before that sort of a thing will not be given force and effect by the residential tenancy branch? So that's the the fundamental question that we're going to grapple with first, And the resolution that the courts have given to this question is, I think, rather ingenious and has stood the test of time in a remarkable way, considering how much our charter jurisprudence has shaped and evolved over time. So this is a question they seem to have gotten basically right very early on in the analysis, in the charter analysis. And in essence, what they've said is, look, if this tribunal is empowered by parliament to decide questions of law, then they have to be able to decide those questions of law properly. And that means they have to decide those questions of law consistent with the supreme law, right, with the Constitution. So if you decide a question of law, but you do so in a way that ignores or violates the charter, the court says you you simply aren't doing what the legislature intended for you to do, which was to determine these questions of law and determine them well and properly. So this is explained in a case, there's three cases that are referenced in the book uh, that come out around the same time, or maybe even two of them at the exact same time. Uh, But I think the best explanation of this framework is from a, a case whose name always sticks in my mind, Cuddy Chicks, it's called. And so this is Justice Laforet in Cuddy Chicks explaining the reasoning behind this idea that if you have the power to determine a question of law, then you must determine that question of law in a manner consistent with the Charter. And so he explains, um, referencing an earlier case, this court articulated the basic principle that an administrative tribunal which has been conferred the power to interpret law holds a concomitant power to determine whether that law is constitutionally valid. This conclusion uh, ensues from the principle of supremacy of the Constitution confirmed by Section 52 of the Constitution Act. He goes on to say, distilled to its basics, the rationale for recognizing jurisdiction in the arbitrator in the Douglas College case, one of the other cases decided in this sort of trilogy, is that the Constitution, as the supreme law, must be respected by an administrative tribunal called upon to interpret law. So if you've been asked to interpret law, that comes with it, the power and the responsibility to interpret and apply the Constitution to that law. Now you can see how this was a controversial proposition that could have gone another way. Uh, What does your average tribunal member know about interpreting and applying the Constitution? It's pretty complicated stuff, right? the fact that you're on the labor board or your residential tenancy arbitrator, or whoever it may be, does that necessarily entail that you're really in a good spot to interpret and apply the charter? But that would probably be more consistent with the sort of Dicean version of the rule of law, right? An idea that the courts are this elevated uh, body that has really exclusive purview over the over the law, including the constitution. And when you get to a more modern principle of the rule of law, a more uh, widespread power to interpret and apply law, which modern administrative law very much embraces, as we well know now, well then you start to say, okay, maybe it does make a little bit of sense that the constitution, being the supreme law, ultimately is just law. It's not special in a sense that it's exclusively the, the, the sort of property of the courts. And in fact, it probably pushes the other way. The Constitution is the supreme law that we all share and we all benefit from. And so as a result, they resolve this question to say, we're not going to elevate the courts to some you know, special, exclusive home of constitutional analysis. Rather, it belongs to everybody. And if you give these tribunals the power to determine questions of law, you are giving them the responsibility to make sure that that law is consistent with the Constitution. So, it's a sort of interesting move. Um, It distills down to a pretty easy question for your sort of framework. Has this tribunal been entrusted with the responsibility to determine questions of law? Now, that is where the nuance comes in. That's where we're going to see the analysis gets a little more difficult. And I'll get to that in a second. But the, the broad question you're asking is just that. If you have the power to determine questions of law, then you have the responsibility and the power to ensure that those questions of law are determined in a manner consistent with the Constitution. Before getting into the tricky part, though, the tricky part being. Uh, what does it mean to have the power to determine a question of law, who does and doesn't have that power? Before I get into that, um, I want to just quickly talk about, well, what does it mean if an arbitra- or if an administrative tribunal decides that something is inconsistent with the charter? What's the remedy? And here the courts have been clear that the remedy is not that they issue a Section 52 order striking down that law, making it, you know, of no force and effect throughout the jurisdiction. Of course, that's the exclusive purview of the superior courts. Rather, what they do is they simply decline to apply that law to the dispute before it. It's not binding in other matters, and pursuant to that principle that there may be um, you know different tribunal members may go different ways on uh, questions, you might even start to get inconsistent determinations from different tribunal members as to whether or not a particular provision is consistent with the charter. It, it only affects the decision that's squarely before them. If you want to get a broader ruling that says that this is you know, of no force and effect and that will be binding in all matters going forward, you have to go to the provincial superior courts. how do you study the Canadian Transit Cohen-Windsor case in your constitutional law? No? Okay. That's fine. Um, there's a little nuance where this principle that uh, a non-superior court only has the jurisdiction to decide constitutional issues for the dispute before it and not to apply more broadly uh, is thought to maybe extend even to the federal court. So the federal court, it gets treated like an admin tribunal in the Canadian Transit Co. case with the idea that its power is derived from statute. It's not a superior court in the same sense as the Section 96 courts. And so, therefore, it, too, can only determine constitutional issues you know, on one-off basis on the facts before it. Um, but don't worry about that. That's just It's an interesting case that I thought you might have looked at, but the basic principle is all you need to know for this course is that we're not issuing... Broadly applicable constitutional declarations We're just determining the facts before you and whether or not you're going to apply that law to those facts Um, So You may have a situation where at the tribunal level different members are determining the same constitutional issue differently, and some people are getting this law applied to them, and some people are not. Fortunately, however, for a kind of certainty, this is one of the areas where there is a correctness review. If a tribunal determines a, that the uh, a law they are required to apply does or does not comply with the charter, this is a question of law that is reviewed on a correctness standard even post-Babalov. So while you may get different interpretations at the tribunal level, you're not going to get a situation where the court's going to say, well, there's two reasonable interpretations. One is that this law is constitutional. One is that the law is not constitutional. We're going to you know, uh, defer to whatever the tribunal decided. You're going to get correctness. This is made explicit within Babalov In a paragraph, you probably sort of skimmed over um, because it wouldn't have resonated much at the time, but hopefully now you understand where they're coming from. Um, And so that's paragraph 57 of Vavilag, where the court says, although the amici questioned the approach to the standard of review set out in Doré, we'll get to that next class, a reconsideration of that approach is not germane to the issues in appeal, However, it is important to draw a distinction between cases in which it is alleged that the effect of the administrative decision being reviewed is to unjustifiably limit rights under the Charter. That's the That the effect of the decision. It's the tribunal itself who's violating your rights. And those in which the issue is whether a provision of the decision-makers enabling statute violates the Charter. Our jurisprudence holds that a decision-maker's interpretation of the latter issue will be reviewed for correctness. So again, you want to have in your framework, if the question is, does the tribunal itself, uh, in its actions, infringe your charter interests, that's the whole dory mess we're going to get into. But if the question is just, does this legislation uh, unjustifiably infringe the charter, such that it can't be applied, that's this um, this framework, the Cutty Chicks framework. You might want to think of it as, and that Cutty Chicks framework uh, is reviewed on a correctness standard. We covered a lot there pretty quickly. Any questions so far? All right, let's let's keep pressing um, because now we're going to get into the more nuanced part, which is how do you determine if a tribunal has been empowered to decide a question of law. And there's been a bit of a pendulum swing on this issue with courts being um, more or less willing to find tribunals empowered to determine questions of law. In essence, where the dispute comes up is, do you need to be explicitly authorized to determine questions of law? Or can you implicitly infer an authorization to determine questions of law? Um, And where are you often going to find explicit authorization to decide questions of law? It'll be in the legislation, that's absolutely right. But specifically, you want to look probably, if there's a privative clause, We've, we've looked at a few of those, and quite often it'll say, not only are you empowered to determine a question of law, but it will say something like, you have the exclusive jurisdiction to determine all questions of law arising under this act, or whatever it is. So... You know, I, I can't stress enough for you um, whenever you're tackling an amid law problem, um, take the time to read the legislation. And this is another thing to put on your sort of list of, of issues you're flagging as you look through the legislation: is how has this tribunal been empowered to determine questions of law? And one thing you'll be looking for is a privative clause. So. You, know, you can overlook those in the standard of review analysis, but they still resonate here. So, you had this sort of dynamic where the court was going back and forth um, on how explicit the legislature needs to be to empower a tribunal to determine a question of law before this cutty chicks idea that coming with it is the power to determine the constitutionality of that law. Arises, and it settled, I think, pretty conclusively in a case called Martin, uh, Nova Scotia Workers' Comp Board in Martin, cited in the text, where the court makes clear that implicit authorizations are sufficient. I just pause. I think this chapter in the text is, it's quite good, but it is dense. Like there is. This easily could have been twice as long, and there's a lot of um, things that are sort of given in a sentence or two that you, know, you, you could. Other authors might have unpacked for for much longer. Um, so I think it's a good roadmap, and I'm not going to ask you to go and read you know these other cases that I'm citing from and discussing today, but do have a look at the notes that I put up because I have some more lengthy excerpts from some of those cases in that I sometimes do, and, and you want to make sure that those ideas have resonated um, because they're, you know, they're given in a very concise form in this, in this chapter, which is appreciated, uh, but at the same time makes it uh, easy to maybe skim over an important point. So the, the Martin case is discussed, but I want to actually read a little bit from the Martin case where the tribunal, uh, or, or where the court grapples with the question of whether the tribunal needs to have explicit or rather implicit authorization to consider questions of law as, is appropriate. And this is starting at paragraph 36. And the court settles, they say, uh, we're doing implicit also. One must ask whether the empowering legislation implicitly or explicitly grants to the tribunal the jurisdiction to interpret or decide any question of law. If it does, then the tribunal will be presumed to have the concomitant jurisdiction to interpret or decide that question in light of the charter, unless the legislator has removed that power from the tribunal. I'm gonna pause there, and it's, it's a minor point, but it's important to be very clear on this. You know, if I give you power to determine a question of law, your constitutional power to ascertain the validity is limited to that law, to that question of law. You don't have a broader power to go beyond and start determining any question of law. It's it's the question that's before you. So the court goes on, still in paragraph 36 of this Martin case, thus, an administrative tribunal that has the power to decide questions of law Arising on a particular legislative provision we will be presumed to have the power to determine the constitutional validity of that provision. In other words, the power to decide a question of law is the power to decide by applying only valid laws. So that's something of a concise uh, restatement of what I've been trying to get across in the first part of this course. That's a good paragraph to flag. Paragraph 39 is where they get into the question of. Uh, implicit authorization. Oh, sorry. A couple of paragraphs later. My notes are a bit um, screwy. So uh, paragraph 39 goes on on this sort of broader framework, and I'll get to the implicit paragraph in a second. Paragraph 39 goes on In other words, the relevant question in each case is not whether the terms of the express grant of jurisdiction are sufficiently broad to encompass the charter itself but whether the express grant of jurisdiction confers upon the tribunal the power to decide questions of law arising under the challenge provision. So just to pause there, what they're grappling with here, and that's the reason I have my notes, is there have been another theory that, well, what I'm looking for is not just the power to decide a question of law, but an indication of the legislature intended me to decide charter issues. And here the court's rejecting that. They're saying, no, you're not looking to see if the legislature has uh, shown evidence of asking you to actually decide charter questions, because that is inherent anytime they ask you to decide questions of law. So long as you say, interpret and apply this law, they are saying, interpret and apply this law in a manner consistent with the charter. And if you can't do that, don't interpret and apply this law at all. So that's a um, sort of part of the the pendulum swing that went the other way was to say, well, we're really looking for the legislature indicating that you're supposed to apply the charter. And they say, no, it's just, are you supposed to interpret and apply questions of law? Um, they describe in nice terms the charter is not invoked as a separate subject matter, rather, it's a controlling norm in decisions over matters within the tribunal's jurisdiction. So they're not, it's not saying you have jurisdiction over evictions and jurisdiction over the charter. They're saying you have jurisdiction to interpret and apply questions surrounding evictions, and that, in that jurisdiction is subject to a controlling norm that sits on top of any question of law, which is compliance with the charter. It's really that supreme law point. So with that sort of highlighted again, Um, let's talk about when you do have that implicit power to determine questions of law. And they note at paragraph 41 a set of factors that are relevant to this ascertainment of whether a tribunal's been empowered to determine questions of law. And they say if there's no explicit grant there may be an explicit grant in that privative clause. Sometimes there's a provision, like there was in the Cuddy Chicks case, that just says, you know, this tribunal is empowered to determine all matters of law and fact that come before it. They say, absent an explicit grant, it becomes necessary to consider whether the legislature intended to confer upon the tribunal implied jurisdiction to decide questions of law arising under the challenged provision. They say implied jurisdiction must be discerned by looking at the statute as a whole. Okay, So it's not just looking at one provision in the statute, but you want to look at the statute as a whole. And the important part is in paragraph 41 where they list the relevant factors to this ascertainment of implied jurisdiction. They say the relevant factors will include the statutory mandate of the tribunal in issue, and whether deciding questions of law is necessary to fulfilling this mandate effectively. So just pausing, that's the first factor. You gotta figure out what's the mandate of this tribunal? What are they supposed to get done? And having identified the mandate, does it flow from that that determining questions of law is part of what they're gonna have to do? If you're going to be interpreting and applying the workers' compensation legislation to particular facts of the case, understanding and interpreting that legislation is going to fall within that mandate. So that's the first factor. What's the mandate? Let's identify it. And does that just entail having to decide questions of law? Second factor is the interaction of the tribunal in question with other elements of the administrative system. So you want to situate that tribunal within the broader administrative scheme. And what they're getting at here is, let's say there is a multi-layered tribunal. That has a broadly an investigative phase, which is then followed by an adjudicative phase. If you're at the investigative phase, you might say, wait a second, this isn't the level that we were, that the legislature would be thinking about interpreting the law. That would be happening at the next level of the analysis. So if you have a a CRA investigator who comes to audit your business. Is the Income Tax Act in some way going to be sort of implicated in this analysis? Yeah, it probably will be. But there's then next levels within the administrative scheme going right up to the tax court of Canada, which is effectively a tribunal. And so... The question of law really gets adjudicated later in the framework. You know, a food inspector, it's a similar situation. Does the individual is coming to your office to, or your, your restaurant to ensure that you're compliant with food safety? Are they interpreting legislation? Or is it really the tribunal where you can dispute any adverse finding against you that has the interpretation role? So you want to look and see where does this fall? And if there's a higher level tribunal that more obviously is intended to grapple with these questions of law, you may find the lower level tribunal doesn't have this implicit authorization. Does that make sense? That's a little trickier. Um, The next day is just broadly is this tribunal adjudicated in nature? So if you do have an adjudicative tribunal that's deciding disputes, issuing decisions, that points towards an implicit authorization to determine questions of law. Uh, The alternative would be something like a pure permit issuing system, like is the person who grants fishing permits to people who want to go bum around with their buddies and try to catch some fish on the weekends, is that person adjudicating anything? No. They're just strictly applying um, you know, what they see as, as their you know, guidance to the facts of any particular application. It's not adjudicative, but it makes it less um, clear that you know, the, the tribunal or the sorry the permit issuing individual would be intended to you know, conduct a charter analysis before issuing a fishing permit. So the more adjudicative the body is, the more it feels like they're going to be implicitly authorized to determine questions of law. And they also point to practical considerations, including the tribunal's capacity to consider questions of law. Is this an extremely high-volume tribunal that's just pushing out decisions very quickly with maybe a... uh, a review level or something like that where the idea that they're going to sit down and do a detailed charter analysis is just sort of unreasonable? Or is this a body like the National Energy Board that's going to spend maybe a year going through a detailed pipeline determination and is going to have the time and capacity to carefully consider questions of law? So these are factors. These are not a test. Which leads to the conclusion, of course, that different people might determine differently whether a tribunal has the implicit authorization to determine questions of law. But ultimately, the court is going to make a final determination on this on a correctness standard if it ever comes before them. So just to sort of recap those, so we've got them all clear, you've got the tribunal's mandate and whether... Deciding questions of law is necessary to fulfill that mandate. You've got the interaction of the tribunal and other levels, perhaps, of the administrative scheme itself. You've got um, whether it's an adjudicative tribunal, and you've got the tribunal's capacity to determine questions of law. And if these factors point in one or the other direction, or when they point in one or the other direction, the court's gonna say, if it comes before, it, okay, you do or you do not have the implied power to determine questions of law. If you do, great. You're going to be able to determine those questions in accordance with the charter. If you don't, then this is just not the right place to bring any challenge to the charter validity of that piece of legislation that you're upset with. You're not left without recourse, though, right? What do you do? Come to court, But then they they, they are very clear and they say, well, this is all well and good, this whole implied jurisdiction analysis. But even if you find implied jurisdiction, it is ousted by an explicit statutory provision saying so. It kills me that they do it this way. They're like, go through this complicated test And then consider if there's a statutory provision explicitly saying that was all unnecessary. So I think you could do that first. Just look for the explicit statutory provision saying this is all unnecessary. Um, But there you go. So once again, and I'll actually pull up this during the break so that I can show you um, explicitly what it looks like. We have a situation where there's this neat framework that you need to know to be a good admin law lawyer that is largely not applicable in British Columbia because the Administrative Tribunals Act has a provision which ousts the ability of tribunals to review, to answer charter questions. Now, you'll remember, again, with the Administrative Tribunals Act, it is this piece of legislation that by itself has no effect, but rather can be invoked, or sections of it can be invoked, in the enabling legislation of various tribunals. So this is an optional sort of clause that the legislature can choose to apply to various tribunals, and indeed, many tribunals have had their jurisdiction to determine the charter validity of legislation ousted by the ATA. There's been a bit of a swing back. Well, I'll talk more about that after the break, so I wanna show you exactly what it looks like, uh, what that section looks like, and what it looks like when a tribunal has that section invoked in its enabling statute. But, you know, nothing would be more embarrassing than to go to court to give a great analysis on the basis of your, you know, your cutty chicks and your Martin, and the court says, yeah, but doesn't the ATA explicitly say that doesn't matter here? So, you know, you need to make sure you do a fail-safe and double-check that the ATA has not been invoked to oust the jurisdiction to review these charter issues. Um, I did want to have it up on the screen so I'll show it to you in a, in a second. So why, like why would BC have said, you know, like, thanks but no nope, to cutting chicks, to say I don't want these tribunals deciding charter issues I don't want them deciding whether or not the legislation they are asked to apply is consistent with the Charter. And there's one just kind of high-level, sort of theoretical, my favorite thing in the world, three, <laughs> three circles um, problem here, which is it's sort of insane that the executive is created by the legislature and is now questioning the legislature. It's like, uh, I don't know, like a disobedient child. Like, I never asked to have that jurisdiction, and I don't have it, Dad. So it's, it's kind of just theoretically a bit strange. You have this whole body whose whole job is to patrol the jurisdiction of these two other bodies, and yet you're saying that you know this body is going to be doing it itself. So there's a high-level theoretical, somewhat uncomfortable um, nature of the Cuddy-Chick's analysis on a separation of powers basis. But um, but that's not why the Attorney General of British Columbia defended this decision to exclude charter analysis from uh, many tribunals through this part of the Administrative Tribunal Act. Instead, the AG said, well, look, who's got the better competency to decide these tricky issues? It's obviously the courts. They also say, when you're going to an administrative tribunal, the whole idea is you don't have to go hire a lawyer. You don't got to get into complicated, tricky issues. And so they say, let's not force people to engage with these problems in this space, in this tribunal space. And they also say, well, what's the other idea of these tribunals? It's not just that they're going to be cheap. It's that they're going to be fast. And so we don't want to drag a hearing out. And I mean, you go to the residential tenancy branch, you know, you're know, you looking at an hour hearing tops. Um, if you try to add in, oh, and by the way, I just want to really quickly tell you the statute's unconstitutional. Well, you're, you're not getting done in an hour. And then you're, um, you know, it's taking more time at every individual hearing. It's taking more time for the decisions to be rendered. So the resources that should be just adjudicating the you know, facts of the dispute, which is what they're good at, get drained away into this You know constitutional analysis that they're not even particularly good at is what the the court is saying or the um, Attorney General is saying and then they say it's also such a waste of time because you go through all that you get a determination and then it's not even binding in the next matter going forward unless you went to the court which is what I'm saying you should just do in the first place so that's the kind of practical argument against the cardie checks framework, which is adopted broadly in British Columbia through the ATA, and which pushes these issues into the courts, as opposed to keeping them in the administrative tribunal system. But what's the counter argument? They're saying, well, you're telling me you're trying to make it easier and less expensive by forcing people to go to court that doesn't make sense. If you can determine it at the tribunal, do it there. Don't force somebody to have to go to court and a tribunal just to not have unconstitutional law applied to them. And so this is an instance where you've got two sides both sort of claiming the uh, the mantle of efficiency, right? The, the side saying, having a side at the tribunal level are saying, that's more efficient. The side saying, don't do it there, go to court, are saying that's more efficient. And the book points out a fact uh, or a a lack of academic study that's empirical on who's right. And this is very frustrating because it's an answerable question. You you should be able to figure out looking at similarly situated tribunals in different provinces where one province follows cut chicks, One province has the ATA, you know, one province being British Columbia. And who is deciding these similar constitutional questions in a more efficient and conclusive and final manner? But nobody's done that empirical research. So, again, I've made a pitch for this before, but I'll say it again. You know, if any of you want to write a paper on that, you know, directed research, something like that, you would probably find that very easy to publish or similarly just broadly you know, if you're doing master's degrees if you're academically inclined empirical study of law and administrative law is a great field to, to look at that's just under um, underutilized but people are very hungry for more of it um, alright so you know maybe I'll take the break now so I can get the um, the ATA section set up and show that to you, and then we'll move into the question of um, what do you do when a tribunal is facing an assertion that somebody else violated the charter? How do you grapple with that? So let's take uh, let's take ten minutes now, and come back at eleven thirty. All right. So I just wanted to illustrate. Uh, I think it's been mentioned a number of times, but it's helpful to just have a look at exactly how you could find the Administrative Tribunals Act to be invoked in relation to a piece of legislation in BC. And so if you look at the Administrative Tribunals Act, again, you remember, it's sort of like a, um, it's like a menu of, of optional statutory provisions that you can invoke in relation to any particular tribunal. And one of those uh, you know a la carte options is section 45, uh, specifically section 45.1, which simply says the tribunal does not have jurisdiction over constitutional questions related to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so if section 45 is invoked, that is an explicit ousting of the jurisdiction to decide these sort of chicks questions. And an example of where you would find that is in the Employment Standards Act. So the Employment Standards Act is um, legislation dealing with minimal standards that employers must treat their employees with. And if you go down to section 110, this is the privative clause. And you see the tribunal has exclusive jurisdiction to determine matters and questions of law arising under or required to determine an appeal. So if you were going to apply the Karty-Chicks test, you'd say, well, this is very easy. They explicitly have the power to decide questions of law. And so therefore, they explicitly, or they, they have the power under the Karty-Chicks framework to ensure that those laws they are applying is consistent with the supreme law of the land. But if you missed it, you'd be in trouble with the court. You look at section, where is it, 103, and you see the following provisions of the ATA apply, section 45, tribunal without jurisdiction over the charter. And so, it's ousted from the Employment Standards Act. And so, you can just go through different tribunals in British Columbia, and you can see whether or not they have the jurisdiction. So, for example, I go to the Residential Tenancy Act. You pull it up. You search Administrative... Tribunals Act and you see oh section 144 46.3 so wait a second maybe that maybe it doesn't apply to the um, to the uh, administrative to the uh, Residence Tenancy Act but you want to go through the entirety of the Act to make sure that you're not missing anything because it does sometimes come up in more than one spot, but it doesn't here. So, indeed, the RTA does have power over these constitutional questions. The workers' compensation – oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to wonder, how clear is it always that it applies? Will it be under its own section, like in both of these? Or will it be, you know, for example, maybe in Section 7 there, Section 7, bracket 8? You know, oh, by the way, is Oh yeah, it could totally be snuck in there. Um, it should be clean, but I would recommend Control-Fing Administrative Tribunals Act, because they, they will refer to it as the Administrative Tribunals Act. But yeah, it, it absolutely could be less clear. And you saw, it's not like it always comes in the same place. You know, It's Section 5 of the RTA, and it's Section 103 of the Employment Standards Act. Um, the Workers' Compensation Act was recently amended to take off the application of Section 45. So for a while it did, um, that jurisdiction was ousted, now it's been given back to the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal. So it's a, um, th- that's how you do it. Uh, you just need to know what section of the ATA you're thinking about and see if it's explicitly invoked in the legislation. So it's a sort of a funny little um process but if you're thinking through almost checklists of what you need to do in any given administrative law case when you're grappling with a new uh, tribunal or system or even with something you're familiar with because like the workers compensation scheme it changed recently you know you do want to make sure you know which provisions of the ATA are invoked and this section 45 is is a rather important one any questions about that I'll just shut this down because it really I feel like I'm blinded by these this light um, alright so so let's move on to the next question which is the jurisdiction of tribunals to issue charter remedies under section 241. and this is you know kind of spoiler alert in a sense it's a kind of complicated analysis where at the end you're not certain it meant anything. Like it, sort of, it, it almost gets you back to where you started from. But let's, let's go on that journey together and see if we can make any sort of uh, substance out of this framework. And so here you want to think you know, we are no longer concerned ourso- concerning ourselves with the executive, the tribunal, determining whether the legislature has overstepped its jurisdiction in the legislation it passed. But now we are concerned with the executive considering actions of other members of the executive to see if they are consistent with the charter and granting remedies if they are not. So just so we're clear with the factual example in mind, the, the, the big case is uh, Conway on this. and In Conway, you have an individual who's been um, you know, detained for a very long time under a uh, mental health order. He was a, you know, found to have committed a number of uh, quite gruesome crimes and was in a mental health facility for a long time. And he went to um, the review board, which is in essence the body that determines if somebody should remain um, detained for mental health purposes, and said, look at this litany of charter violations that I have been subject to while detained. And of course, the people, he was saying, who had violated his charter rights were themselves members of the executive. And this Board is an executive adjudicator, so this is now the executive being asked to uh, to weigh in upon the charter compliance of actions of other members of the executive. And he said, "I want a remedy of a uh, discharge. I want to, I want to, I want you to say you've violated this guy's charter rights so significantly, you have to let him go. You can't keep him detained anymore." So, that's the nature of the Conway uh, dilemma, and that's sort of the, the broad framing you want to have in your mind. Now we're talking about the executive uh, measuring the charter compliance of other executive members. So, just become like a graffiti artist and have the worst tag ever. This everywhere I go. <laughs> um, so, You probably remember Section 241 from First Year Constitutional Law, and it's the remedy portion of the Charter. And it allows a court of competent jurisdiction to grant appropriate and just remedies. And so the question then is well, is it an admin tribunal, a court of competent jurisdiction? And initially, you might think, no, nope, not, not, not at all. But the, um, the resolution is to say, no, they are. They, an amin tribunal can be a court of competent jurisdiction to issue a Section 241 remedy. And then the court, very hopefully, in, um, in Conway, says, and you know how we're going to decide if they're a court of competent jurisdiction? We're going to say, are they empowered to determine questions of law? They're going to say, we'll we'll use the exact same approach from Martin. So if you are empowered to, in essence, determine the constitutionality of your enabling legislation, so too are you empowered to determine the constitutionality and action that comes before you and issue remedies. So it's you know it's nice in the sense that you have the same framework being applied in two situations. It's analytically easy. Theoretically, it's not intuitively clear why the same analytical framework would apply, though. Because just looking at our three circles, they really are quite different questions. Measuring the constitutionality of legislation, you've been asked to to, um, to apply, to ensure it's complying with that supreme law, Versus invoking a section of the charter that, you know, on its face seems to really only be talking about the court courts and not administrative tribunals, and especially not administrative tribunals in as broad of a of a um, articulation as you know any tribunal that implicitly is empowered to determine questions of law. Um, and then you want to think well. So let's think this through. So if you are empowered then to issue section 24 remedies, um, I'm just gonna pull up the language chart so I make sure I get it right. But it's it's any remedy that you consider appropriate and just in the circumstances and the, sorry for that noise. Yeah, to attain such remedy as the court considers appropriate and just in the circumstances. And so that all of a sudden seems like, well, it's anything the court can fashion. And indeed, that's how the courts have interpreted this power under section 241. they They've said this is a broad remedial discretion. So whatever we think is right to, you know, fix the wrong that's come before us. So if you're saying you've got jurisdiction over questions of law, and if a charter issue comes up, you've got full 24-1 powers. Like, my goodness, that's a huge leap for these tribunals who previously had, what, only such remedial discretion and jurisdiction as is given to them by the legislator. So I'm setting that up as just the dilemma that's faced, and it's not the way things have landed and I'll show you how we get there in a second but you know the the attraction for a tribunal is saying whoa now all of a sudden I've got this I can issue any remedy I like whatsoever you know you can see how this is a significant issue for tribunal power so Moving into the Conway analysis, which I, I've got some lengthy excerpts from in the case, but I, or in the, um, in the notes, I, I wanna just highlight a few important parts from, before getting to the sort of conclusion, which is, you know, in essence, you don't get this really broad remedial discretion in tribunals. Um, so what the court says in, in Conway is they first say, Justice Abella think writing with Justice Deschamps, but I'm maybe just Justice Abella. She says, First, let me explain to you why I'm gonna say we're just gonna apply the same framework for a uh, finding a 24-1 remedy as we did for finding legislation to be of no force and effect. She said, if as in the Cuddy Chicks trilogy, Expert and specialized tribunals with the authority to decide questions of law are in the best position to decide constitutional questions when a remedy is sought under Section 52. There is no reason why such tribunals are not also in the best position to assess constitutional questions when a remedy is sought under Section 24.1. So she's saying, the way I see it is you have basically the same question. Is there constitutional, uh, is the state... Having acted in a constitutional way, the difference is just a remedy. Are you under section 241 or section 52? And I don't think you need to have a different approach. So that's her explanation for why she, you know, isn't concerned about this distinction between analysis of legislation versus executive action. She says it's all about charter compliance and it just is a different remedy at the end of the day. She goes on to a quote from Justice Chief Justice McLaughlin. If an arbitrator can find a law violative of the charter, it would seem he or she can determine whether conduct in the administration of the collective agreement violates the charter and likewise grant remedies. So she's hearkening back to a case called Weber, which ironically is the case that was sort of considered strongly in the Horrocks decision looked at last week. But she's saying in essence, look, here's Chief Justice McLaughlin having said a long time ago that there isn't a distinction between analyzing the legislation and analyzing the administration of that legislation vis-a-vis you know, whether these administrative actors can do so. Um, and then she goes on, she says when a remedy is sought from an administrative tribunal under section 24 the proper initial inquiry is whether the tribunal can grant charter remedies generally. So if you've if you were okay under the Martin approach, you're going to be okay here. Then she goes on to say, and this is the important part. So you, you're, you've gotten through the Martin approach, there's just, are you able to grant constitutional remedies? Then she says, once the threshold question has been resolved in favor of charter jurisdiction, that is, you pass the Martin test. Explicit or implicit authorization that's not been removed explicitly by statute. The remaining question is whether the tribunal can grant the particular remedy sought given the relevant statutory scheme. So just pause there. That sounds sort of innocuous, but when you unpack that, it's actually really, really important. They're saying, what is your section 241? remedial jurisdiction limited by the statutory scheme you're operating in. We'll get to why that really matters in a second, but just hold that in your mind. Answering this question is an exercise in discerning legislative intent. On this approach, what will always be at issue is whether the remedy sought is the kind of remedy the legislature intended would fit within the statutory framework of the particular tribunal, Relevant considerations in in discerning legislative intent will include those that have guided the courts in past cases, such as the Tribunal Statutory Mandate, Structure, and Function. So, hold on, are these tribunals now able to grab this broad, flexible remedial discretion that Section 2401 promises? No, they are constrained to only grant the kinds of remedies that the legislature empowered them to do. So what do you get in terms of your 24-1 remedies that are available at the tribunal? You get the kinds of remedies you could have gotten anyways. So that's why this has been criticized as a big circular analysis that gets you almost nowhere. You have the power to grant these remedies. Yes, you do. Great, but they're only the remedies you get to be granted, anyways. Oh, you know, it's sort of a—I um, think there's more to it than that. But that's the criticism. That's how this this approach can be seen as um, offering relatively little. So, just to be clear on what happened in the Conway case, she said, um, "Are you empowered?" Ontario Review Board to determine questions of law? Why certainly you are. Can you give 24-1 remedies? Yes. Can you give this remedy of an absolute discharge to this person who is saying there's been all these charter violations? No, you can't because the legislation, while it contemplates you have the power to discharge people, it says you can't do that if the person is dangerous, then you explicitly found that this person is dangerous. So you can see why the council in Conway, you know, they, they needed section 241 to give them a remedy that the statute otherwise wouldn't allow. Because the statute explicitly said look, if you're dangerous, you can't get you can't get out no matter you know, no matter what the other circumstances are. They needed 24-1 to go beyond what the legislature had already given to the tribunal. And despite getting the court on sides with the idea that this is a tribunal that can grant 24-1 remedies, the court said you still face a block when you face a clear legislative intent to not allow a remedy in that particular situation. Now you want to think, I mean this is where this stuff all gets complicated, what else could you have done? Well, you might have been able to challenge the constitutionality of that legislative prohibition. Could have said it's unconstitutional to limit the remedial discretion of this tribunal to not allow it to, uh, you know, issue this discharge in this circumstance. But frankly, good luck getting through that analysis when you're talking about dangerous offenders being released. But you can't just rely on 24-1 to circumvent clear legislative intent to not allow a particular remedy. So what are you left with? What's the good of it? What's the point? And I think it's just this. And that is that When you are seeking a remedy, the tribunal can otherwise give you one relevant, or maybe strongly relevant, or maybe frankly conclusive in the circumstances factor as to why you should be entitled to that remedy would be your charter rights. You can say, you can give me this remedy. And not only can you give me this remedy at your discretion, this is a remedy that is necessary to remedy a charter wrong or to, to vindicate my charter rights. So you want to think this whole section 241 analysis, when we're talking about um, tribunals themselves applying it, really falls more in the category of what should the tribunal do, not kind of what can they do. It doesn't expand what they can do, but it may govern what they should do, how they should or even must exercise their discretion. Does that make sense? All right, that's a tricky one to me, that... I'm not sure I totally got that till last night. And I say that late, <laughs> like, reading it over and over again. Like, I think I get it. Um, but I'm pretty confident that is right. Um, it's not an issue I've had to deal with, because when you really unpack it, you're like, well, this just doesn't come up all that much. But it's a good thing to have in your back pocket as a rhetorical device. Um, you know, if you can fit your problem into a charter framework, then you may be able to... Um, sort of compel a reluctant decision maker to exercise the discretion they have in your favor. You just don't want to think that you can go too far and somehow expand their jurisdiction. And again, you want to remember that ultimately, from your client's perspective, a big part of what they are paying you to do is to know where to go in the first place. You know, the most important decisions you make for your client's bottom line are often the ones you make right at the outset of the file, which is why don't skimp on getting retainers for that initial review. Don't say, let's just get it started and then we'll figure it out down the line. You know, spend the time getting yourself set up properly because if you don't, you know, your client will love you on day one, but they will hate you at the end when you get kicked out of the tribunal for being in the wrong place. Uh, If you really should have gone to the court in the first place, you know, my goodness, that's you want to know that and you want to be able to say, listen, uh, I can't get you the remedy you want at this tribunal. I know the court process. I have just told you it's twice as expensive and it's going to take twice as long. But I can't get from A to B here and I can get there there. So if you want to do this, that's the only place we can go. You, know, you really have to spend, like I, I can't emphasize this enough, but I, I was speaking from, learning this the hard way, certainly. Like you can't, don't skimp at the outset. Figure out where you need to go, figure out what jurisdiction different tribunals have and whether you have to go to the court. And when you're dealing with these charter issues, these really do come up. All right. Um, So that sort of closes off kind of the easy half in a sense, of the um, charter interaction with administrative law. And I want to now get into the question of how the charter constrains the jurisdiction of the tribunal themselves in their exercises of discretion and how they administer the law and what you do when somebody says, this tribunal issuing this order has violated my charter rights. That's the whole Doré-Trinity Western University framework. And I like the chapter for sort of setting up some of the problems and questions and dilemmas. Um, It's not, you know, in-depth enough on Doré to really, I think, land the case. So I do think it's important to read the case carefully and then grapple with the Trinity Western University, especially the various uh, competing interpretations and approaches to charter values analysis because I think you see you know a pretty remarkable story of going from unanimous court to a few years later being like we've got four different completely different approaches and who knows what's going to win going forward so what I want to do with the last few minutes that we have today is to set up Doré and Trinity Western University by talking a bit about the nature of the problem and the early efforts to, um, to resolve it, and then also to briefly talk about where this concept of charter values comes from. You may have heard of it before, but just to make sure we're all on the same page with um, its roots, which are not in administrative law. So, So again, you know, I've I, I pointed to the framing that we're in is this question of the administrative discretion uh, being exercised in a way that infringes the charter. And I've got a quote from a case called Eldridge in the notes, which I'll just refer you to, which is a good, a good place to, if you're still a little fuzzy on exactly where we are, how this, where we are in the general framework, this kind of lands it nicely. And this is the court in Elleridge saying, look, first, legislation may be found to be unconstitutional on its face because it violates a charter right and is not saved by Section 1. In such cases, the legislation will be invalid and the court is compelled to declare it no force and effect. Secondly, however, the charter may be infringed not by the legislation itself, but by the actions of a delegated decision maker in applying it, in applying it, the executive in such cases, the legislation remains valid, but a remedy for the unconstitutional action may be had under section 24.1 of the Charter. But again, we're talking about here a remedy issued by the courts. So now we are outside of the framework necessarily of, um, of the executive, you know, issuing 24.1 remedies itself, but we're inside the framework of saying that this le- executive has strayed beyond its constitutional limits in exercising its discretion in an unconstitutional way. And now we're into judicial review. The courts are looking at that exercise of discretion to ascertain whether it complies with the charter. And the court initially was like, well, this isn't very hard. Like, We have a charter framework. We just came up with it. Or Joel Bakken came up with it. Section <laughs> one. it's section one. It's Oakes test. I'm going to apply it. Like great, you know, good day at the office, and that is the approach that is associated most notably with the case called Slate. Um, and in Slate, is sort of an interesting case. Um, just from a charter rights perspective, where you had a um, an employment tribunal saying, you know, you unjustly dismissed this person, and now they're kind of screwed in getting another job because, you know, you go to the go to get a new job, and what do they say? Well, where's where are you working? Well, I worked here for twenty years, then I was canned. Oh, okay, well, move along, sir. So what they say in Slate, or what the remedy at issue in Slate was, um, the tribunal ordered the previous employer to give a factual and neutral um, letter of recommendation to this person that just says, you know, they worked for this long, they, um, you know, they had this, this, and this, and this accomplishment. They were dismissed, but that dismissal was found to be unjustified. And also... If if the um, if you get a call from the employer, you're not allowed to disparage them. You're not allowed or the, the prospective employer. You're not allowed to disparage them. You know and undercut that letter. So from a charter rights perspective, there's forced speech, and there's um, in the sense that you're forced to say these things about this person, and there's forbidden speech. You're forbidden from. You know, undermining that forced speech. And so the employer says, This is violative of my freedom of expression. And challenges that order on judicial review. And the court simply goes through an ordinary Section 1 analysis. Ultimately, they found this is a prima facie infringement of Section 2B. I mean, not surprising to be protection is very broad and most of the time if you challenge something that's you know affecting your expression you're gonna find a prima facie infringement the action is in section one and indeed in that in slate the court the majority of the court found that the order was defensible under section one it was justified in a free and democratic society. So slate easy in a sense. Apply the section one analysis. A case comes up some years later called Multani. And this is a Sikh um, young adult who wants to carry, or you know, is religiously compelled, as opposed to carry. A kerpan, a ceremonial knife, and runs into a ban on weapons at school. So again, you've got a pretty clear prima facie infringement of a religious freedom, and the action is going to be in justifying that infringement. So the majority reasons written by Justice Sharon, and she, you know, in her usual clear and straightforward way, just says. No, I mean, slate, we'll do a section one analysis just like we would anything else. And we'll decide that this, um, you know, this is is or is not a reasonable limit pursuant to the ordinary Oaks framework. But you get the sort of winds of change of blowing through a descent co-authored by Justice Isabella and Deschamps. And they say, look, um, applying this strict Section 1 analysis to an administrative decision is superficially compelling, but doesn't make a lot of sense when you scrape beneath the surface. And they say... You know, first off, there's a bit of sleight of hand in even getting into section one at all. Because what's the language of section one? You know, such reasonable limits prescribed by law. And so, is a administrative decision Law? Is that prescribed by law? See, that's a bit of a stretch. They say in paragraph 112 of the Multani dissent an administrative body determines an individual's rights in relation to a particular issue. A decision or order made by such a body is not a law or regulation but is instead the result of a process provided for by statute and by the principles of administrative law in a given case. A law or regulation, on the other hand, is enacted or made by the legislature or by a body to which powers are delegated. The norm so established is not limited to a specific case. It is general in scope. Establishing a norm and resolving a dispute are not usually considered equivalent processes. At first glance, therefore, equating a decision or order with the law, as Lemaire does in Slate, seems anomalous. So she's just saying, I don't see it as right that you're saying an individual determination of one dispute is the equivalent of a law passed by the legislature that would ordinarily be subject to a Section 1 framework. Um, I would put this in your mind as more of sort of a concerning feature of the analysis, not really what drives Justices Isabella and Deschamps, but it's an interesting point that I think is, you know, is worth considering if you find attractive the just pure, let's have a section one analysis. Come on, give me a break. So they then go on to say, look, in our view, Administrative decision-makers should not have to justify decisions under the Oaks Test, which is based on an analysis of societal interests and is better suited conceptually and literally to the concept of prescribed by law. That test is based on the duty of the executive and legislative branches of the government to account to the courts for any rules they establish that infringe protected rights. The Oakes test was developed to assess legislative policies. The duty to account imposed conceptually and in practice on the legislative and executive branches is not easily applied to the tribunals. Then the key paragraph that really sets the stage for Doré is section 109. And they say, the idea that norms of general application should be dealt with in the same way as decisions or orders of administrative bodies, so norms of general application—they mean legislation, regulations. As suggested by Lemarin and Slate, may be attractive from a theoretical standpoint. However, apart from the aesthetic appeal of this unified approach, we are not convinced there is any advantage to adopting it. And this is where it gets to its key key points. The question is not whether an administrative body can disregard constitutional values. The answer to that question is clear. It cannot do so absent an express indication that the legislature intended to allow it to do so, and parenthetically then, you could challenge the legislation itself. The question is rather how to assess an administrative body's alleged breach in a decision of its constitutional obligations. They say, is it the section one approach or is it under an ordinary administrative law standard of review? And they say, we think, I'm paraphrasing now, if you go with the administrative law approach, resolve it under the ordinary standards of review, of reasonableness or correctness, depending on, you know, however that falls, we're not going to have a problem because a law that undermines, or sorry, a decision that undermines constitutional values will be neither reasonable nor correct. So they say, let's forget about trying to import oaks out of legislation and into the review of actions of the executive tribunals. Let's forget about that. Let's stay within a admin law framework, but let's recognize that if you're undermining constitutional values, you have acted neither correctly nor reasonably. So this is the dispute that's set up for the Dore case. Should we continuously approach Section 1 Oaks or should we move to a framework that keeps this squarely within administrative law, potentially keeps questions of deference alive, and focuses on these constitutional values? And so I'm going to pause there on the sort of this framework because I think um, you're you're ready to probably get Doré and, and Trinity Western um, maybe more easily with that in mind. But I want to, in the last few minutes, we have briefly remind you of sort of the history of this notion of constitutional values as distinct from constitutional rights, but nevertheless being given real legal impact. And so the idea that you have constitutional values first finds its um, acceptance in the context of the application of the charter to the common law. You probably remember this from constitutional law. And if Dolphin delivery and grant and Torstar are the cases that are popping to mind that you're on the right page. So you'll remember in those cases, you know, there was a question as to whether the judiciary was bound by the charter directly in the decisions it was making, including its application of the common law. And the court decided that the charter does not directly apply to the common law, nor does it apply in a roundabout way by saying that judges cannot issue decisions that are inconsistent with the charter. So in a purely private dispute, where only common law rights are at stake, the court says you can't invoke a charter analysis. And why? Well, it's because in a purely private dispute, the charter doesn't apply. If you have a dispute with your landlord, and they discriminate against you on the basis of race, you can't say they violated your charter rights. We're allowed to violate each other's charter rights legally. It's only when the government violates your charter rights that you have a problem that can be rectified by the courts. Otherwise, you can look elsewhere, human rights. You know, there's, there's other forums, employment standards, other forums to introduce ideas of equality and fairness into private relationships. But in the absence of such, you just have a private relationship. The charter doesn't apply at all. And so if we were to say, well, the charter doesn't apply, but the common law you know, must be reviewed for consistency with the charter, you've just gotten there anyways. You've, you've effectively made the law subject to the charter, even if it's just a purely private dispute. So the court said, we're not going to do that either. And we're also not going to say that when we issue an order, that order can be independently reviewed for compliance with the charter. That's just the fact that a judge got involved doesn't make this an action of government. So they're preserving this distinction between the charter applying to the government and not applying to individual disputes. But here's where the charter values come in. They say, however, okay, what is the common law if not flexible? The common law evolves in order to reflect the values, and morals, and judgment of the society as a whole. It changes over time. And if you want to know the values and morals of society, what better place to look than the charter as a reflection of those values? And so they say, well, you cannot challenge the common law as being unconstitutional. You can argue to me that the common law needs to evolve in a way that's more consistent with charter values. So I think the best example of that to really illustrate in your mind is that Grant and Torstar case, which is about defamation And defamation, of course, is a purely private tort. You know, you defamed me and I'm going to sue you for money because you said something that tends to diminish me in the eyes of right-thinking people. But what's the response to that? Hey, charter, like, I'm freedom of expression. I'm allowed to say things that, you know, even if they're offensive to you, we've elevated expression over over this type of a thing. And certainly defamation can have a huge chill on free expression. So what does the court do in Grant and Torstar? They say, well, you cannot challenge the law of defamation directly as being inconsistent with the Charter. However, I will recognize the law of defamation should evolve in a way that is more consistent with the expression, uh, the value of protecting freedom of expression enshrined in the Charter. And so I'm now going to recognize a new defense, a new common law defense to a defamation action. So you see here the idea that the adjudicator, you know, the court, is not itself claiming to be subject to a section one analysis in its decision, in its exercise of its discretion, but it's rather saying that I should exercise my discretion and evolve the law in a manner consistent with these charter values. And so broadly, you know, that's the framework that idea that there are these values underlying the charter which should guide exercises of discretion, that's the framework that's picked up on in DORE. That's the idea that we're going to have the charter apply through these values that guide your discretion rather than through a rigid Section 1 justification analysis. And so that's how we try to make this Jump from sort of charter rights over to charter values, but you saw there are a lot of criticisms about this jump. You know, is it really not my right at stake if I'm being denied something at a tribunal? Does it should it, would it be fair that you know if the legislature explicitly said that this was? Um, this was to happen, I could challenge that legislation and get a a strict Section 1 Oaks analysis. But if the legislature just indirectly authorizes a tribunal to get to the exact same result, I'm stuck with this fuzzy charter values framework. There's real problems that need to be grappled with. And so I hope you feel set up to read Doré and Trinity Western. They're, They're really interesting cases. Trinity Western is really interesting, that whole saga. Um, So I'm looking forward to getting into it next class, but I think we'll stop there for today.